Just in time for Election Day, we have begun our new series, Dystopian Doom. That means we've got to start with the two most infamous dystopian novels ever made. You've heard of them and you've likely already read them. Aldous Huxley's Brave New World in 1932 and George Orwell's 1984 in 1949. What are the differences between these two books? Which villain is worse, the flippant Mustafa Mond of the world state or the torture of Big Brother? And of course, which one of these dystopian dooms are we more likely to confront today? Escape to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory and apply their meanings to the real topian world. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, Lorehaven's publisher and the co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and Big Brother is definitely watching you. And this is episode 137, Which Dystopian Doom Sounds Worse? Orwell's 1984 or Huxley's Brave New World? People talk about utopias versus dystopias. That's why I led with saying that we have a topian world. If you have a utopia or a dystopia, what happens if your world is just a topia caught in between the extremes of either the really, really wonderful future world that people think is right around the corner if we all just make the best laws and practice the best behavior of the utopia or the doom that awaits us if we make bad laws and practice bad behavior, the dystopia. Yeah, it's interesting how popular dystopian fiction is, Stephen. I, I rarely see utopian fiction, I think, although I think that would be kind of interesting at times. Or if there is a utopia, it's humans who ruin it. Uh, there's a episode of Star Trek Next Generation a long time ago that was where they discovered this world where there's basically a god of this world. There's no sin at all. And then the Enterprise crew introduces sin to that world through uh, Wesley breaking some minor rule about don't walk on the grass or something. And so there's this perfect utopia and humans ruin it. And uh, I think that goes to the instinct that uh, humans are going to ruin some things. So dystopians just fall naturally within what we expect to happen. You had to mention that episode. That episode is so wrong because it was just an excuse to have a bunch of 80s workout fit people running around in <laughs> leotards and less. Anyway, now that we've got that mental image out of our heads, uh, happy election day to all. Let's just replace that with a much happier image. Uh, by the way, get out and vote or not. Uh, it depends on what you feel called to do. But however you vote, uh, let's not vote for dystopia or for utopia. We don't expect a utopia anytime soon. I'm longing for the true, happy, joyful paradise that will await when King Jesus returns. Uh, but that's not for a while yet. Uh, no politician is going to reach that standard. Dystopian fiction, Zach, it's a huge, huge among many of our listeners. A very popular series, of course, The Hunger Games not too long ago launched the trend that seems to have faded, I think, in terms of its overall cultural awareness. Uh, but lots of Christian fans still love and share uh, dystopian books, uh, mostly in that uh, YA young adult dystopian genre. When I've gone to the homeschool conventions with the Realmakers Bookstore, people are still looking for dystopian fiction. Uh, it scratches an itch. It seems to meet a need that people have to speculate what's ahead. Uh, I feel this some threat looming uh, from the future. Uh, in the past, I think Christians uh, shared a lot of end times fiction, which applied certain views of biblical prophecy to try to forecast some of the future. 
Uh, but now people seem open to uh, other uh, dystopian scenarios that don't involve an antichrist and meteors of death and people disappearing and all of that sort of thing. You know, it's interesting how the Hunger Games sort of followed on the success of Harry Potter, which was about, uh, I mean, it's a YA world where there is, you know, lots of peril and danger, but it's also this, the wizarding school, right? That's a positive place for teenagers to be a part of. But in the Hunger Games, the main rite of passage for teenagers is a battle royale to the death on live TV. And that that's uh, about the worst possible thing you could be in as a teenager. And it's always kind of struck me how that one followed the other one. But also, um, I've always wondered, like, what is the real world thing that these YA dystopias in particular are resonating with? You know, is it just the angst over school and homework and tests and getting into college and getting a job? Or is it some other sense that a lot of young people think they are growing up in a much worse world than existed just a few decades ago? I see a lot of chatter among Gen X people and older that, oh, the world's, you know, going to uh, Hades in a handbasket or something. But are a lot of teenagers picking up on that? You know, in, in Gen Z, do they do they think the world is much worse? And I think there are a few trends, like especially if you look at financial trends, it does seem to be a much more difficult place to get your footing as a young person. Anyway, this is an open question to our audience. I, I wonder why these stories resonate so deeply. Well, dystopian fiction, of course, is not a new trend. Uh, the newer books that we have now, uh, The Hunger Games and others, are building on a tradition. I don't know if it was invented, but it was certainly a precedent set uh, by these two authors from the 20th century, Aldous Huxley and uh, George Orwell, whose lifespans and uh, creative works did overlap. And in fact, they apparently interacted a few times arguing over whose dystopia was the worster. Uh, and whose was uh, more directly ahead for society. We'll get to that in our concession stand before we move into uh, discussing and comparing uh, these two books, which, uh, by the way, I've read uh, now, finally, uh, just this year, uh, only recently. I'm sure that you, faithful listener, read that in high school. Uh, I had a great education, but somehow just missed out on this experience. And yet, as we'll see, like I'm not sure I would recommend these books for a high schooler, uh, particularly if you're sensitive to certain kinds of temptations or other images like that TNG planet. Thanks for that, Zach, uh, that we don't want running around in our heads. <laughs> Let's put a better image in our heads. Uh, the sweet cover and description for our top sponsor for this episode, returning champ Oasis Family Media with their upcoming book, Aberration by Kathy McCrum. This is a science fiction novel. It's book two of the Children of the Consortium series. It releases this coming Tuesday, November the 15th. Freedom awaits, but the consortium is watching. When rogue drones threaten citizens and the ship's crew falls ill, the recorder answers their call for help, once again drawing scrutiny from the consortium. With no other option and under an elder's overbearing watch, she returns to Palace Station where she nearly lost her life in the hope of finding something, anything, to save her friends and countless others. Her friends are determined to keep her safe, but for the recorder, saving others comes first, no matter the cost. That's Aberration by Kathy McCrum, book two of the science fiction Children of the Consortium series. You can see that cover and more information, including the pre-purchase links in our show notes for this episode or at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Zach, do we still have some candy lying around from Halloween or maybe some hoarded uh, cranberry dressing uh, coming up for Thanksgiving? Uh, if so, we can move to the concession stand. 
Uh, it is election day as we are releasing this episode, at least in the United States. Uh, no direct correlation intended by talking about uh, two bonus, two types of dystopian governments on this day. You can make the joke, but we won't. Uh, we're avoiding specific discussions about platforms and policies and persons here. Uh, that's standard Lorehaven policy. Uh, the only exception is if we're talking about moral issues, worldview issues that are wrongly conflated with politics. I don't care if you say that's political. We're going to talk about that anyway, because it was biblical first. It's an issue of morality, not policy. Uh, if you're listening to this episode weeks after Election Day, I still want to wish you happy Election Day. Uh, because uh, we're still counting the votes in certain areas of the United States, and there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> it's the most secure ever. Don't oh, question it ever. I can feel the censorship uh, hanging over my head right now. <laughs> exactly. We're all getting put on the list. These issues, by the way, the moral issues, uh, we talk about them at Lorehaven because they are super political. I think I'm saying that correctly. These are basic human issues uh, before they are issues of a party platform or a person's uh, policy who's running for office. Uh, that's why we're talking about them here. They're more about how we organize and recognize moral realities, uh, which interfaces with fantastical imagination, a gift of God. It requires imagination uh, to put together policies based, hopefully, on recognizing moral realities about the world. This is the way things are. Therefore, humans should govern themselves this way. For example, a biblical Christian worldview says that humans are not basically good and society gets in the way. Uh, humans are, before Christ, basically evil, and so their corruption corrupts society. That's a big difference between how Christians ought to see the world and how other people see the world. Speaking of Christian identity, uh, we are talking about two, as far as I know, non-Christian authors here. Uh, neither Aldous Huxley or George Orwell was a professing Christian, as far as I know, I think uh, Huxley gets the closest by having some Bible verses get quoted, uh, but he also quotes Shakespeare, and uh, it's just a moral mess of a worldview uh, with this uh, tribe out in the desert uh, in the uh, in the world that he's built for uh, Brave New World. Uh, so we don't tend to favor uh, non-Christian authors on this podcast, not because they're evil or don't do good work, but just because we want to focus on Christian fantastical authors. However, these books are an exception, I think, that proves the rule. Uh, they've informed an entire subgenre of science fiction or futuristic fiction, that of the dystopian novel. And so it's worth exploring and uh, doing a little compare and contrast with these books. Also, I mentioned this earlier, big discernment note. Uh, I was surprised because I somehow think that old books don't do this. But yes, old books certainly do. Uh, both of these novels include sensual scenes. Uh, 1984 goes into a little more graphic description. Uh, it actually gets cut short in uh, Brave New World, and uh, the overall effect for me of this one scene was comedic uh, because someone is actually opposing what's going on, uh, clinging to at least a Christian-derived worldview. Uh, this person uh, interrupts what could have been a scene of carnality because he doesn't want anything to do with that. He wants to be a man. He wants to be based and trad and wholesome and fight for the right to win a woman and be monogamous and faithful to her uh, rather than follow along with her lifestyle, uh, the cultural patterns of the world state. Uh, it's actually a funny scene, so I didn't have a problem with it, uh, but things got a little uh, uncomfortable with 1984. Your mileage may vary, but we want to call that out. Uh, that's something that I think most people would struggle with, uh, particularly if you have a vivid imagination when you're listening to something or reading something. 
some people, Zach, uh, I understand uh, it's actually worse for them uh, hearing or reading about something than it is actually seeing it on the screen. So we want to make a note of that and suggest that, you know, maybe teenage readers should not read these books for that reason. Yeah. So I, I read uh, Brave New World in high school. I was supposed to have read 1984 then. I've, I've read it more recently. But yeah, I can still remember a few of those, uh, you know, bedroom, I guess, scenes uh, from Brave New World from, gosh, almost 25, 30 years ago. So yeah, it's a little uncomfortable. 1984, I would say my concession for that is it, it just feels very dark and heavy and, and kind of depressing. And so, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I honestly had to put it down for a little while when I was reading it because I'm like, oh man, this is just not lifting my spirits. And, and you know, and I'm the kind of person that watches uh, dystopian or war or action or even horror. And I, I, I can feel better afterwards because I'm like, hey, my life is pretty good compared to what's in this story. But I think it's because of the very strong connection between this book and many current events that it felt sort of eerily prophetic in a in a bad way. And so, yeah, your mileage may vary while reading these books if you haven't yet. And so we're, it's not that we're recommending them necessarily. It's just that, hey, a lot of people have read them or heard about them or heard of their influence. So let's uh, talk about how that comports with a Christian worldview. That's a vital concession uh, that reading it might be not a central experience, but just a disturbing experience. I will give away the ending for both books. Both end in tragedy. Uh, both have not happy endings at all. And I knew that going in. I had that expectation upon me, uh, but I didn't expect literally to have my day nearly ruined by the end of 1984 because it was so discouraging. And yet I do feel that I went into it with a biblical foundation, knowing that there was one key ingredient missing from the 1984 narrative that Brave New World actually has and reflects, uh, but it's completely gone from 1984. And uh, that seemed to actually stack the deck a little bit uh, in favor of the nihilism or nihilism, pick your pronunciation. Uh, once you add that back in, then there's more hope for the universe. But uh, he's cheating a little bit there, uh, George Orwell. There's one thing that he's accidentally memory hold, and we'll get to that in chapter two of this discussion. Uh, I recommend that these books are appropriate for uh, young adults uh, at the earliest, uh, or if you struggle with despair, uh, depression, or even uh, temptation to the more central things. Yeah, definitely avoid these books. Uh, I think, uh, Zach, I wonder, this would be interesting to figure out whether reading the book on the page or by the ear uh, affects how you have a mood change. Like, for example, I read both of these books by audiobook. And by the way, our Oasis Audio president, Steve Smith, I believe, said that there are studies that show that, yes, it does count as reading. So I'm going yep. to use that verb. You read the audiobook. Right, mm -hmm. exactly. And I wonder then, did this make the impact worse for me uh, in terms of the, the bits of despair I was feeling afterward? Uh, or did it make it better? Was it uh, easier to handle? I don't know. Uh, it would be, would be very interesting to qual qualify that. It, I think it just heightens the emotions. It does. Maybe it does heighten the emotions a little bit. There is a, there's what I can only describe as a jump scare. And the audiobook narrator for 1984 just reads it straight with just the appropriate amount of drama. And yet it was a jump scare. It was the mm. slowest jump scare I've ever had. I don't recall ever having a jump scare from an audiobook, but it was the audio equivalent. So just be forewarned. Uh, it is dystopian doom. Uh, it's not going to be uh, kitties and rainbows and uh, frolicking in green fields today. Uh, we'll occasionally go to the dark side here. 
on uh, the Fantastical Truth podcast. So if you're ready, uh, let's turn off all the lights and plunge forward. Uh, Zach, any other concessions? Uh, let's at least take some snacks into the dark. Yeah, I would just say I, I think tragedy, like stories that end in tragedy and end on a low note, I, I think they can still be extremely powerful and beneficial to us and even positive in a weird sort of way because, um, you know, tragic stories are so rare that they really stick with you. They teach an important lesson that, you know, carries with you for the rest of your life. So you, you look at a lot of the, uh, what is it, Hans Christian Andersen uh, type stories that are, are the brothers Grimm, you know, sort of the classic, I mean, the, the boy who cried wolf, how does that end? <laughs> that ends in very big tragedy. And so, uh, but it, that lesson sticks with you. And so I, I do think that there is value even in these kinds of stories. I, I think it's sort of a bitter pill to swallow at times, but it prompts us to sort of prevent that from happening. As Ray Bradbury said, I write science fiction to prevent the future, not to predict it. I was just thinking of that quote, and I was hoping you would say that. I think that precedent for tragedy goes back uh, much further than Orwell or Huxley and much further than the fairy tales, but we can go all the way back to scripture. Uh, there's dystopia themes all throughout because that's what happened. Literally, that is at the, uh, at the heart of the gospel narrative is that God made humans for what we could only describe as a utopia under his divine monarchy. Uh, Adam and Eve then rebelled and plunged the world into dystopia with hints of that coming paradise. You can get some good government, you can get some good kings and prophets and periods of peace, but read the book of Judges. It is a pattern of dystopia throughout the generations, and then it ends with everyone doing what was right in his own eyes. Uh, you read the lines of kings in the books of Kings and Chronicles, and you see that so-and-so uh, king came to the throne in Israel. Uh, he probably killed his grandfather in order to get there and then slew all the servants and the heirs. Uh, but he knew not the Lord. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, and then the king of Assyria rose up against him and slew him in battle, and he died and was buried with his fathers. I just, there, that's it. You can just put that on a loop, uh, that paraphrase, and then that's half of the book of Second Kings right there. That's dystopia. And so obviously God, the divine author of authors, thinks that uh, dystopian genres matter. I think that's why we should uh, explore them now. So let's move to chapter one. How does Brave New World condition humans? That's a little different from Orwell's 1984, in which Big Brother tortures the humans. Uh, Brave New World, technically, from 1932, is not a dystopian society, or is it? That's kind of a question at the back of the narrative, which, uh, by the way, I noticed uh, when I was reading this past summer, uh, this world has a little known name. You hear Big Brother name checked all the time. Big Brother is watching you. Big Brother this. A bunch of the buzzwords from 1984 are far more popular than Brave New World. But Brave New World does name things. Uh, unlike 1984, Brave New World has a government called the World State. I think it has capital letters and everything. And for those who haven't read it or haven't read it in a while, uh, the book opens with all world building. You're getting a tour of the lab where they grow people. There are embryos in test tubes, and they're all sorted according to alpha, beta, gamma, delta class. Uh, each one has a predetermined role in society. So, okay, familiar territory here. Uh, if this was a, a teen YA dystopian book, then everybody would get their own uh, color-coded job assignments, and then you'd end up in a love triangle before you start the revolution. It's kind of tropey now. But it was fun to see a prototype version of the tropes and yet also very scary because people are growing people in labs. And this isn't a voluntary thing. 
Uh, this is something that the world state has decreed. This is law. This is culture. And people are being sorted in society. But it's not a, a teen girl character who's great at archery uh, who ends up being forced into a particular job or a particular uh, uh, tournament games. Uh, people like society. People like being sorted this way because everybody by now has been grown in the lab and they've all been conditioned to like it. I was doing a little background reading here. Uh, Huxley had written this before the discovery of genetics. So what he's kind of describing here in 1930s sciencey terms is genetic conditioning. But in this case, he's kind of bluffing his way through. Uh, thinking that, okay, if you have this assembly line for humans and they were picking things out of uh, Petri dishes with droppers and putting them in other things and making human beings that way, then you can condition people, e even as infants. Uh, you can put certain people in certain environments and make them like certain feelings, certain scents, uh, certain tasks, and certain pleasures, and you can make other people not like it. But everybody likes the system. That's why the book is subtly challenging you. If everybody likes it, can you really call it a dystopian? Even if you have periods of uh, disagreeable times, you can always take a drug of some kind. You can take the drug called Soma, or you can take a different type of drug, which, by the way, makes Brave New World, for me, more scary. Because even in the 1930s, so just past the Roaring Twenties here, folks, uh, just going into the uh, Depression, uh, you had not movies, but feelings. It's a movie you can feel. It seems kind of 3D. Apparently, everything is an ultra 6K resolution. Uh, you can actually smell the action. You can feel the action. It is an emotional drug by a popular culture. And popular culture is state-sanctioned in the world state. Uh, music and families and even religion are all synthetic. Everything is synthetic. And that's kind of the scary part, because this is an ultra-consumeristic culture. Everything has been uh, made efficient uh, for the sake of the consumer. All the propaganda and everything is all put into that philosophy. And the scariest part to me was, Zach, is that families are no more. Uh, in fact, it is a vulgarism. It's almost a blasphemy to say that someone has a mother and a father. You can't you have a say jar. that. Yeah, exactly. Well, you don't need, you don't, it's just, it's the system. Mm -hmm. uh, you're a part of a herd of humanity and you have a role in the herd and you've been conditioned to like it. And so you do like it. And what's even better is uh, there's free love. So this is a book 30 years before uh, the, uh, the official start of the sexual revolution in the 1960s. And in the words of the state sanctioned propaganda slogan, everyone belongs to everyone else. We won't go into detail here. And Huxley does avoid a whole lot of scenes of this, but it's always at the periphery of the narrative. If everyone belongs to everyone else, then you can just get together with whomever you want. Everyone's sterile. Uh, everyone's using contraceptives. This was before uh, that decision in the 50s uh, that made these uh, legal, supposedly, in the United States. We won't go there. Uh, but that part is scary to me, is that the consumeristic culture is also a, a, a state-sanctioned, sexually perverse culture. All other traditional religions are gone, as far as we know. And this is all world building, by the way. Uh, we actually get the main characters like a, a few chapters into the book. And I'm thinking, oh, OK, I guess we do have some main characters here. Uh, the main characters have a uh, really obscure names like Bernard Marx, M-A-R-X. Uh, I wonder who uh, that's named after. And Lenina Crown, Marx and Lenin. So they're just right there. Uh, it's not subtle at all, uh, really, there. Uh, Mr. Huxley, appreciate you making that so plain to us. 
there are phrases repeated throughout the book, which really, I think, uh, if you're going to be a pundit out there, you need to use these phrases at least as much as the 1984 of phrases uh, from Brave New World. You get the world state motto, community, identity, stability. There it is right there. Identity. But after community, right? Everything's about identity, right? I've already mentioned everyone belongs to everyone else, which represents a commitment to absolute sexual libertinism. And then the other one that leaped out to me, uh, if for no other reason than I'm always reluctant to throw things away out of uh, implicit rebellion against this phrase, because I think, well, you can fix it. Why throw it away? If it, you know, that microwave may be shorting out inside, but surely the right person could fix that. And then you don't have this giant thing rotting away in a landfill somewhere, poisoning the earth. The phrase from Brave New World is spending is better than mending. If you get a small tear in your garment, don't sew it back up. Just throw it away and get another one. So they're not good environmentalists there uh, in the world state. So this thing is kind of uh, uh, over-partisan. Like you can't really claim that uh, for any particular uh, American political party now. Huxley is taking on all comers. Uh, and yet I found personal shock and revulsion by how much the world state and its rulers loathe human life, human flourishing as it was meant to flourish, religious freedom. There's literally state-sanctioned religions and uh, uh, enthusiastic, weirdly uncomfortable uh, devotion to uh, Ford, Henry Ford, uh, the pioneer of the assembly line. Yeah, it's, it's going on there. It's Fordism in the name of our Ford and Ford forbid. And of course, it's a cute little clever rhyme. But yes, that was a shock to me. Yeah, that was one of the things I was going to say really stood out to me was the world building about how from the littlest thing that that shows you kind of the biggest picture of this world, um, the thing that I always remember is uh, instead of wearing a cross necklace, everyone wears a T necklace. Yes. And instead of a cross being on buildings, it's just a T. It's an uppercase T. And so they, they chopped off the top part of the T. It's almost corny. And I remember at, at the time and in the, and since then talking to people about this, like, wait, so is it, are they anti-Christian? Is that what's going on? It's like, well, not exactly. I mean, they're, they're using the T to commemorate Henry T. Ford. And or the particularly, Model T. Yeah, and the Model T, and particularly for his statement, history is bunk. And so what this world contains is this attitude that we don't need to worry about the past. 1984, and we'll talk about this in chapter two, has the whole process of memory holding something, like officially erasing or changing the record through this coercive kind of process. But in Brave New World, it's, oh, who cares about the past? Eh, we don't need to worry about that. And, and that I think is so insidious that, um, th there's a, uh, author, Neil Postman, who wrote a, a book in 1985 called amusing ourselves to death. And he says here, quote, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book for there would be no one who wanted to read one. And I think that's exactly what Huxley got right is that. You give people enough pleasure, you give them enough uh, entertainment and distractions, and they're not just not going to care about the past. Oh, I don't need that book anyway. Who, who cares about that? Because as you said, everyone belongs to everyone else. And that's you know a lot more interesting than some boring old book. I'm trying to approach this from a, a biblical Christian perspective. And so I'm asking, okay, if this world were real, if these people were real, do we hold them morally responsible 
for this terrible habit they have of distracting themselves. You mentioned distractions, Zach. And I'm thinking, yes, I think they are responsible, but at the same time, they have also been conditioned to be this way according to the world's rules. So how much of that is conditioning and how much of that is moral responsibility? I don't know. As far as I know, uh, this world doesn't exist and God forbid that it, it exists anytime soon. But people will make, I feel, the morally culpable choice of taking the Soma drug. Uh, interesting uh, uh, route there. Uh, I'm thinking of somnambulism, you know, somebody who does things while sleeping. You know, it's like you're sleeping, but you're kind of awake. You know, you're in this uh, condition, you're kind of in this drugged state, but also Soma rhymes with coma. So uh, there's a lot of these little, it almost feels like cheap world building. Uh, especially when you go into things about the Model T and Ford forbid and all of that for Ford's sake, you know, <laughs> that gets a bit corny. It really does. But then it also it makes sense. It almost feels like an alternate history where the wrong sorts of leaders got the idea that if Henry Ford could roll out all those automobiles and change technology and change culture uh, by pioneering the use of the assembly line, and what happens if you apply assembly line consumerism to everything else, including culture and families? What if someone decided, oh, well, we can just build people just like we build cars? And so it's all one cohesive worldview here. Uh, that's what the uh, sexual perversion is for, because if people have normal families, then that's not efficient. You end up with all these potentials for broken relationships. Things can go wrong in families, but in the right kind of lab, Nothing goes wrong. And if it does, well, it's just uh, barely an embryo at that point. You can just throw it away. Yeah. And this very much tracks with what we talked about in a previous episode. I quoted from this guy, uh, Yuval Harari, who's an extreme materialist, uh, works with the World Economic Forum. And he said, hey, humans are just biological algorithms. And just like we can, you know, recode a computer program, we can recode humanity to be whatever it should be and whatever is most efficient and um you know utopian and so there again it's like that that desire for utopia is what actually creates the dystopia and you're right it it's not just that people are dumb and they're you know just given over to hedonism it's that there is a system that's put in place that is enslaving people in this system of pleasure and uh they don't realize that they're in a prison there there's a great article from the sci-fi channel I found, we'll link this in the show notes, that um, says, uh, quote, there's this slow realization for them that they're completely controlled by the system. And I think that's quite terrifying to be controlled, to be a prisoner and not realize it. And, you know, and it's not just the Soma drug, it's that there's this class system that everyone's divided in these five classes from alpha to epsilon, uh, you know, in the Greek alphabet, the alphas are the leaders, the epsilons are the janitors. I think the main character is a beta or a gamma. I can't remember. Uh, I don't think we see a whole lot of the deltas in this book, if I remember correctly. But we we see a lot of interaction with the epsilons that basically they're just drugged out of their minds all the time. And uh, they do all the menial work and they you know, just the low IQ people. In 1984, they call it, uh, he calls them the proles, you know, just the underclass of society. Um, so it, that's also kind of interesting in both books. There's this sort of stratification of society, but yeah, you, you know, your place in brave new world, you know, where you belong, what you're supposed to do, and then you can do whatever you want. And then for any regrets, just take a Soma. 
Right. And soma use is prevalent, uh, especially as certain characters are decaying in their life situation later on. But it's a strange sort of dystopia, if it is a dystopia, that actually allows you to go to what could only be described as a reservation where people are living like savages outside of the world system. And that's where, if I had to pick a favorite character from this book, uh, it would be, of course, uh, John the Savage, uh, a young man who has grown up uh, rather unrealistically, I think, but let's just bluff our way through this. Uh, He's grown up teaching himself the Bible and Shakespeare and this bizarre hybrid uh, religion of possibly offensive uh, Native American spirit folklore uh, combined with a sort of uh, raw Catholicism. So interesting world building again. Uh, He believes in the great spirit and the mighty eagle on the mountain and Jesus Christ all at once. And yet, if you're desperate to find some positive portrayal of Christianity, well, here it is. And yet, Zach, I noticed that it's a it's a rather interesting precedent being set here by Huxley uh, in that he views Christianity primarily as a means to an end. Uh, he groups it along with all these other traditional human beliefs, including the works of Shakespeare and classic literature and uh, you know Western culture when things were better and we actually had families. So he's seeing this in a very trad way, but not necessarily a biblical way. He wants Christianity, it seems, mainly for the benefits that it gives to human flourishing, not for the sake of worshiping Jesus Christ as personal King and Lord, uh, which is what the whole religion should be about. Nevertheless, I liked John the Savage overall. Uh, It is he who resists uh, Lenina's advances because he has grown up with this more untempered chivalrous take that he's gotten from the Bible, but mostly Shakespeare. So he quotes Shakespeare a lot. I'm not sure how he trained himself to understand that archaic language even then, but somehow he managed it. And there's this whole backstory that John has uh, with actually the uh, uh, the controller of the world state, if I'm getting my terms right. And by the end, though, uh, what is the most tragic development, which really I should have seen coming, and we'll just go ahead and spoil it here. John ends up, uh, after the death of his mother, Uh, moving to the world state, but getting his own space to try to live out in the woods and reclaim full human flourishing by himself. And yet he just becomes a tourist attraction. Everybody shows up to take a look at this guy who's out there trying to be a man, trying to be a Chad uh, who's chopping wood and building his own house and putting himself through a kind of penance. And then the helicopters show up and the TV cameras show up and they just think that he's a freak show. And ultimately he ends up committing suicide. The end. Uh, that's the end of Brave New World. Uh, I didn't expect uh, a happy ending. I didn't expect the overthrow of the world system. Uh, but then again, even the Hunger Games, uh, which is not a very wish-fulfilling type of book, despite being geared toward uh, younger readers, uh, that also does not end happily. So if you're looking for a wish-fulfillment where the teens rise up and overthrow the world system, it doesn't happen there. It uh, doesn't happen at the end of Brave New World. And spoiler alert again, uh, it doesn't happen at the end of 1984. The tragedy I think we see in Brave New World is it's tragic that someone doesn't accept how great this world could be because, uh, as this other article here from the New York Times says, the totalitarian rulers in Huxley's book give their citizens exactly what they think they want. <laughs> uh, that's by uh, Charles McGrath, author of this article that we'll link to. John takes for himself what is actually good and true and beautiful, or at least he tries to. He He rejects you know, all the pleasures and cares of, of the world that he's in. Uh, but he can't survive in that world because no one wants to be outside of it. And so the real tragedy 
is everyone that's still stuck in that world. It, in a way, it's like John's death is not a tragedy, but it's everyone else's indifference to his death that I think was the tragedy. It is an absolute tragedy uh, that John finds no place in this world, uh, that there's no hope whatsoever. Uh, that's the one thing missing from this world. There's no church. Uh, there's no Bible teaching. Uh, there's no one to come along and show him a better way. Uh, Christ has abandoned this world if he ever existed there. And that's where the bluff is kind of up. Because even in some Christian beliefs in the end times, you have the church, or at least Christianity, showing up. Uh, there are saints. There are evangelists. Uh, they may be having their heads chopped off by the Antichrist eventually in some Christian end time scenarios. Uh, but God does not abandon that world even while he is pouring out his wrath upon it. Uh, that's why secular dystopians are so fascinating, because I imagine apart from the gospel, you can't help but wonder if this could really happen. Uh, if an oppressive world government or a, a Soma-obsessed a popular culture that substitutes these weird uh, Henry Ford worshiping raves uh, for other religious enthusiasms, could they actually stamp out all the other religions? Well, perhaps they could if you got enough uh, people together. Uh, if you had uh, attacks in just the right kinds of places, and some of that feeds over into the world building for 1984 as well. But I think that wraps up our discussion for Brave New World. Let's pause for some light. Uh, our second sponsor for this episode, uh, Mountain Brook Fire, bringing some light and some heat into this discussion. Wraithwood, Alyssa Rowett's YA fantasy debut, earned high praise from Forward Reviews, Reader's Favorite, Portland Book Review, and the 2022 Realm Awards, where Wraithwood won Best Fantasy Audiobook. Here's an endorsement from author Carolyn George. Immersive, atmospheric, and brimming with magic, Wraithwood presents a skillful take on Arthurian legends, harnessing a gothic manner and ensemble of enchanting characters to create an unforgettable read. You can check the links in our show notes to purchase your copy of Wraithwood by Alyssa Rowett. Go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors for all the details or get the basic links in the show notes for episode 137. It's available in audiobook and paperback. Well, Big Brother is also available in audiobook and paperback, and it's not a pleasant experience, but one that we may need to understand, especially if we're to understand all the many catchphrases that George Orwell created that are overused, underused, I'm not sure, in our world. That brings us to chapter two. Whereas Brave New World conditioned humans, Big Brother from 1984 tortures the humans, and that's the difference between them. Uh, the conditioning is uh, a lot less efficient, I would say, uh, but in the words of Orwell, uh, just imagine a boot stamping on a human face. That's how he saw the future of humanity. I see it a little bit differently. I see people on their knees before King Jesus or else a far worse fate. Yet Orwell got more famous. Uh, 1984 with its uh, uh, fascist state is uh, far more quoted than Brave New World. The evils in 1984 are a little bit more obvious. And by the way, he wrote it in 1949. So this was, you know, basically saying in the year 2235, uh, this is a far distant year for George Orwell. And yet also you don't even really know if that's the current year. I think that's actually spelled out Zach in the first chapter as Orwell is saying, well, uh, Winston Smith thinks it's 1984 because not too long ago it was this year, but he isn't very sure. He just needs to start writing things out to try to figure things out. And uh, George uh, Orwell uh, brings Winston Smith in as the main character a lot earlier than Aldous Huxley. Uh, and yet the world building gets started straight away. 
By the way, you've probably heard of the world name too, Oceania. That how you say it? I listened to the audiobook and I still can't remember the pronunciation. Uh, it's not, it's definitely more popular than the world states. I actually think world state is a better name for a dystopian government. But interestingly, I found that uh, whereas the world state in Brave New World covers all the world, uh, 1984 has at least three big states, super states. It's uh, Oceania versus East Asia and, and another one. Uh, I only remember East Asia because of the phrase Oceania has always been at war with East Asia uh, because uh, they're constantly retconning the history uh, in, uh, in 1984. Uh, Winston Smith is part of the, of the state agency that helps to memory hole things, retconning the history, and he knows what's going on, but it's just the job to this guy. And then he goes back to his crummy little apartment and oddly enough, uh, watches, uh, 80s workout videos in, uh, 1949 television is everywhere. You control everybody with the screens, by the way, they go two way, they can spy on you. It's a total surveillance state. All the tropes are true in 1984. Uh, and yet Smith has one advantage that the poor souls of Brave New World don't have. He's not been conditioned from birth to think and like it. Uh, he discovers that he's falling into what the language engineers of 1984 call wrong think. There's a lot of discourse, Zach, about the engineering of language. Uh, it's interesting from just a uh, editorial perspective how Orwell sees language being decayed uh, or forcibly decayed on purpose by those who are constantly paring down the words like while the double brave, plus good yeah, yeah. Double, yeah exactly <laughs> like you don't use all these uh superfluous adjectives and adverbs like just add a few simple modifiers uh to basic nouns and then issue the new dictionary uh, and in controlling the language you control the world uh, whereas in brave new world you're not controlling the language so much as you're controlling uh, the human soul as much as you can, but we'll get into the comparisons later. Uh, Smith starts to get woke uh, to the state of things. Uh, that's a lowercase W there. Uh, <laughs> he starts writing down things in a secret diary and freaking out, thinking that he's going to get spied on. Spoiler alert, he's correct. Uh, the problem is way more systemic than he thinks, so that's where the depression comes in because you're constantly rooting for this guy. I'm rooting for this guy a lot more than I'm rooting for the folks in Brave New World, uh, especially because, you know, you get this little revolutionary buzz. Uh, Winston Smith eventually doesn't like big brother. He doesn't like the thought control and he doesn't like all of the artificial hype against the fake villain, Emmanuel Goldstein, who's the big bad of big brother. Uh, Smith also gets to fall in love. There's a love story here and, uh, you know, central scenes aside, it's a rather genuine love story. Uh, he goes from enemies to lovers. Actually, there's an enemies to lovers trope in 1949, uh, the, uh, the year that this uh, book released. And the world building, I felt, was a little bit more organic. Uh, you are discovering this world alongside Winston Smith uh, rather than having it be set up and then introduce the main characters into it. So many phrases here, Zach, you may remember some uh, that originated all from 1984. Thought police, memory hold, ministry of truth. There's a bunch of ministries in 1984. The ministry of truth, the ministry of peace, the ministry of love, and the ministry of plenty. Uh, a lot of ministry going on there and not the kind that your pastor is supposed to do. Uh, Newspeak with a capital N comes from 1984. That's the language engineering, by the way. That's the folks redoing the dictionary to make things more efficient and streamlined and thereby define words for everyone else. Uh, wrong think. Uh, I don't know if unpersons got started here, but it definitely makes an appearance. And there are many other terms. Zach, can you think of any others that uh, 1984 got started? Oh yeah. Two plus two equals five. 
that's I, in I've, here. Yep, yes. That, and that's hugely uh, quoted right now on social media. And we'll get into that in a minute. Um, yeah, we've always been at war with East Asia. Well, memory hold is literal Mem- be- memory because hold, yeah. there are no computers here. Okay. This is right. a very analog society. So I'm not sure exactly how those telescreens work, but, uh, you are going through the paperwork, at least Winston is. And if you find a fact, uh, that your, uh, folks in the uh, higher in the hierarchy have decided is no longer a fact, uh, then you literally drop it down a hole and you don't know what happens to it. It's just gone. So you just imagine this old, old time style bank, uh, you know, or, uh, or With other the pneumatic places. tubes, the yeah. pneumatic tubes. Yes, exactly. And so, I, I mean, I'm thinking, Hey, this is a, not, not a steampunk adaptation, but uh, a little bit diesel punk here. And in fact, if you're to describe it that way, actually brave new world is pretty diesel punk as well. Actually, eh, 84 could be Adam punk. If I'm remembering my punks correctly. Yeah, that surprised me. So I, I've heard this book quoted forever, but it was only until this last year that I actually read it. And I was really surprised that the memory hole thing was like there, he's dealing with physical pieces of newspaper clippings and then changing them and then, you know, feeding the new one into the tube and then taking the old one down to the memory hole where it's burned. I, I was surprised it was so tangible because they have these telescreens that are like two way TV flat screens with, with a webcam, like we would think, you know, like an iPad basically with a kind of FaceTime capability. So that surprised me that it was analog. It, it's one of those quirky things about um, dystopian fictions from decades ago, how the, the things that they predict correctly and the things that they don't quite predict. Um, but essentially the, the process of what's going on with memory holding is what we've seen on Wikipedia so many times where something gets edited and edited and edited. And then or the actual Merriam-Webster dictionary. Oh, yes. Right. The like changing definition. timing of changing definition. Yeah. And that's volunt. As far as we know, <laughs> I want to start a conspiracy here. As far as we know, that's just the Merriam-Webster people up to some tricks. Uh, they're not being told by the world state or Big Brother to do that. As far as we know, or maybe it's just suggested over lunch uh, with that guy from the uh, department of so-and-so. I, it all seems informal at this point. Uh, it almost seems like well, we get to the comparisons in a moment, but it seems like 1984 tricks according to Brave New World rules. Mm-hmm. The other big phrase that shows up in parlance today is thought police. And, you know, in 1984, that is literal. There are, there are people that are the thought police and they come after you for things that you just write down in your journal. and Wrong think, yes. For wrong think, yes. So that's a crime. Um, there's this quote. I'll just read the first part of it. It says, the party told you to reject the evidence of your eyes and ears. It was their final, most essential command. And boy, I have seen that quoted so much this year and in recent years. And that's the interesting thing about this book to me, Stephen, is that it is quoted by both the right and the left. I can think of ways that this has been used against the current president and the former president. And that's what has really made me fascinated with it is that everyone kind of thinks that it owns the other side. Uh, so it, it's powerful for that reason. Well, that's powerful because it's imagination. You see very obvious evils uh, being imposed by this tyrannical government and this cult of personality around a, a central illustrated figure called Big Brother. Uh, who in my favorite cover of this uh, used by the Amazon audiobook, uh, looks like an AI mashup of both Joseph Stalin and Saddam Hussein, <laughs> the uh, former dictator of Iraq. 
But Orwell is not so vague about the ideological origins of Big Brother. He names it. It comes from a philosophy called Ingsoc, uh, which is short for English socialism. Uh, I think if I remember my more surface level research there, uh, Orwell himself was a socialist, at least a disaffected one. Uh, he maybe uh, would have thought that there was more humanitarianism behind this thing, but then saw or at least projected outward. Well, it could lead to this, though, if things went really awry. And so he's warning about a particular ideological tradition, uh, not necessarily free markets or things like that. So I don't know how you could apply that to whichever party is claiming that the other party is big brother. Uh, I think, again, we're dealing with kind of an overpartisan imagination here. You can't uh, just take it and then slap it onto the other guys. Uh, this is a human problem. And we'll get to right. the comparisons again in a moment, but I, I keep wanting to think, okay, so is this really happening now? Well, it depends on where you look. Uh, I think there are some nations where, yes, basically they're using 1984 uh, as a training manual. Uh, they are taking the standards set by the party of Big Brother and they're using them not as a cautionary tale, but as an instruction manual. Uh, and it is not cool. And of course, they also persecute Christians. But that leads to what I set up earlier here, Zach, is that Christianity and other religions are even more absent in 1984 uh, than they are in Brave New World. Uh, there's a few people in Brave New World who are quite aware of the old literature and the Bible and Shakespeare and everything else. They just find it boring and inefficient. Uh, and uh, a problem for society because it leads to all these disagreements about art and all that. Like, why would you get into all that sort of thing uh, when you can just enjoy a more efficient consumerism where everybody owns everybody and you can practice your complete sexual freedom? They're just bored with that stuff. Uh, Big Brother's not bored with it. Big Brother hates it. And somehow, though, Big Brother's managed to stamp out every underground church, every underground suspicion that other religions might be true. That part is a bluff too far. I think it's not just pessimistic. It's unrealistic. Christianity and even other false religions are those durable microbes that can live in the uh, lava shafts of active volcanoes. Uh, there will always be a remnant of people who believe these things uh, privately, but also gather together uh, in a bunker somewhere. Uh, to open the scriptures and worship and teach about the true Jesus Christ. And the fact that Big Brother could stamp them out to me, no, that just doesn't work. Uh, that is just, uh, that's that's too deeply human of a condition uh, for a tyrannical government to stamp out. So you mentioned the dictionary and how, you know, today, how it's being modified before our eyes uh, on the internet, but also in this book and how it's being modified. So Winston meets a man named Syme. Uh, this is on page 48 of the hardback. And he says, you know, how's the new dictionary coming? And, and this is Syme's job to edit the dictionary. And he says, oh, the 11th edition is the definitive edition. We're getting the language into its final shape. When we're finished with it, people like you will have to learn it all over again. You think, I dare say, that our chief job is inventing new words, but not a bit of it. We're destroying words, scores of them, hundreds of them every day. <laughs> And then he goes on to talk about, uh, you know, why do we have all these, uh, he says, it's a beautiful thing, the destruction of words. What justification is there for a word, which is simply the opposite of some other word? And then he goes into talking about good. Uh, you can have ungood or double good or double right. we, plus good. We don't good. say bad. We say ungood. Yes. Right. <laughs> it's, it's not false thinking. It's wrong think or yeah, yeah. it's the, the negative approach. 
And so this is all part of new speak. And that's the other big phrase that, you know, we hear today. Then there's the slogans that are very, very well known. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Yes. Is strength. Yeah. Man, you hear that just all so the chilling. Time. Yeah. Yeah, it it is. And and just I mean people will overuse the phrase gaslighting, but the boldness of the lie. The difference is that in 1984 lots of people know it's a lie, but you can't call it out for a lie because your children might turn on you. And this oh, is, yeah, you know, kind of a Hitler youth part. effect. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Uh the children are being trained against you and and yet they're perfectly fine with the proles having a a, fa- a traditional family structure. Uh, that's yeah. different from uh, Brave New World. So which one is scarier? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. But yeah, that, that to me strike, struck me as unrealistic in, in 1984, at least compared with today's society, is that people are not so much destroying words, but subverting them. Uh, and, it's, and it's spread by meme. It's spread by popular cultural trend. Uh, and it's spread by uh, information technology which 1984's Big Brother just doesn't really have. Like like you said, Zach, the peak of their technical development seems to be that two-way telescreen that enables the constant surveillance. But now, like a real-life nation like China, for example, can actually do that. And people are chattering about a social credit system and some scary stuff uh, that would make this a very different podcast if we camped there. So we won't. But it doesn't work. Uh, that strategy wouldn't work now because for one thing, we have books like 1984 that warn us against that. So great crisis averted. Uh, those then who wish to rewrite the dictionary are going to have to do that in a more subtle way, except they're getting sloppy. Uh, there was not too long ago where literally a definition changed in the dictionary that just seemed too strangely timed to be coincidental. I forget which one that was, but it was a flash in the pan political debate. Uh, and, and suddenly the definition changed. And everybody knew it, but the internet is forever. You can't memory whole stuff that easily. For now, we still have a screenshot button. All right, that was pretty dark. 1984. Uh, by the end, by the way, spoiler alert, uh, Winston Smith famously must learn to love Big Brother. It's a happy ending, asterisk. So Brave New World, all the other people in the world state live happily ever after with their soma and their fornication and their absolute efficient consumerism. Uh, but we know that it's actually a tragedy. And then by the end, Winston Smith learns to love Big Brother. Uh, it's a happy ending. But again, we know that it's actually a tragedy. So on that rather happy note, uh, let's go to our third sponsor for this episode. Uh, once again, it is the Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded, uh, that amazingly covered podcast and soon to be book from David Umstadt. Here is the description. As you know, Pilgrim's Progress is a classic story of redemption, allegory, and theological poignance that has profoundly impacted millions of readers over three centuries and changed the landscape of English literature forever. It's also a story with a total lack of robots, space marines, or talking platypuses. So we fixed that. You're welcome. Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded is a narrative podcast you can listen to on the podcast app you are using right now. Just search for Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded to start listening for free. You can get those links and the information and that rather boss cover for this project at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors redone page. All three current sponsors are now at the top of it and see the basic links as well in our show notes for episode 137. Zach, Vanity Fair from Pilgrim's Progress uh, with or without the platypuses. Uh, reminds me of Brave New World, just this vacuous, uh, flippancy-obsessed, drunken, carousing, 
uh, culture uh, into which uh, the pilgrims themselves look like very square Puritans. Uh, but then you realize that they're the happy ones, uh, Vanity Fair and uh, the world state. They are a miserable society uh, convinced that they are on the right side. And that leads us to chapter three, which dystopia is morally worst or most realistic? Zach, this is the part that maybe I should have set up earlier is that you and I really are going to try to have a knockdown drag out debate here, taking different sides of this because folks often say, because the catchphrases are so popular that, yeah, well, big brother is real. Uh, we're moving into the surveillance state. Uh, we're all going to be talking news speak and memory holding bad ideas when the government tells us to, it's all 1984 all the way. Right. But I'm firmly on the side that at least in the United States, uh, Brave New World has taken the lead uh, in the dystopian society that we're most likely to become uh, should the Lord not prevent this. I'm taking the position we're already living in 1984. Uh, you, you think it's safely overseas, only happening in China, but it is absolutely happening here. And there's a big story that broke this week. Uh, I'll be quoting from this kind of throughout this segment. But The Intercept discovered through leaked documents, public documents, and some lawsuits that the Department of Homeland Security has been policing what it calls disinformation through a public-private partnership with tech and social media companies and getting information uh, uh, changed, banned, getting people banned, and memory holding lots of ideas and lots of statements. And so it, it's already happening, baby. Yeah. Are you sure we're not in the prequel to the prequel <laughs> to 1984 that Orwell never wrote? Because uh, if, if we were in 1984, I'm just going to nitpick your phrasing there. We would literally not be able to have this podcast. The thought mm. police would show up. I guess uh, that's true. Really would be eavesdropping through my webcam I'm using right now over the <laughs> app to talk to you. So we're not there, but it, I don't even know if China is there, but China is in the prequel to 1984, whereas we're in the prequel to the prequel to the prequel. So let's talk about China. They are absolutely there. So 20 years ago in China, everything was cash. Everything was analog. The people had cell phones, but you okay. know, it, it, it was, uh, they were behind kind of where we were technologically at the time with like electronic payments and everything. Now everything is electronic. You, you have to use an app like WeChat. And WeChat does everything. It, it's basically uh, PayPal, it's Uber, it's uh, you know online banking. You manage everything through this app. Like everything in your life is managed. And uh, as soon as COVID uh, happened, what China did was institute a not just a like vaccine passport, but like a COVID test passport. Where now, like pretty much every day or every couple days, or it, it depends on which city you have to get a COVID test that's, you know, negative, And then it changes a QR code on your phone. And then that gives you access to whatever it is you want to do. You know, go to work, go to the grocery store, go see friends, get on a train, get on a bus. But this QR code can be changed for other reasons. So people that uh, post wrong think on their social media or spread misinformation, their QR code is changed from green to yellow or red. And then if you get caught with a red uh, QR code, you know, and even if you have a negative COVID test, you will literally get sent to a concentration camp. Now, it's not where people die, but it is a political prison, essentially. It's this vast, vast network of these little, 
I mean, they're, they're like portable buildings, but it's essentially a cage that you live in for, you know, indefinite amount of time. And so it, there is total digital control of people in China happening right now. I, I don't know that it's necessarily in every city, but it's in a lot of cities. And, uh, yeah, it is, it is very 1984. So I think, I think maybe the question is which prequel are we living in it rather than which story we're living in, you know, here in America. And so, uh, I'm, I'm going to make the argument and I'll let you jump in, but I, I think we are absolutely in that same prequel. Yeah. Even despite our awareness of these things. Okay. Uh, could it be said that we're in a prequel to a prequel to a prequel <laughs> that is a crossover between both of these kinds of dystopians because people we don't like to have a singular worldview. We like to mix and match and pick the parts that we like best. Uh, I see us now uh, with flashes of 1984 level thought control. But like I said earlier, according to the rules of Brave New World, uh, largely people are doing this voluntarily. Like I would not be surprised at all if uh, some uh, government official had uh, just happened to mention to somebody who's running the Merriam-Webster dictionary that, you know, you may want to change the definition of so-and-so uh, really, the experts have all gotten together, and really that definition you got there now is just is just outdated. So whenever it's time, and then when it pops up in the news, someone goes, oh, yeah, we had that conversation. Yeah, that's probably a good thing to do. I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. But more, uh, I think, applying Occam's razor here, I think it's more likely that it's simply a groupthink. Uh, it's, it's simply the herd mentality. And that goes back to some very older... Uh, more, I think, reliable arguments in favor of media bias. It's not necessarily that there's the party sending out memorandum uh, to all of the news anchors and all of the big journalists in the United States when it's time to change the definition of a word or emphasize a particular issue. It simply catches because we've got this technology. We've got smartphones that China may be abusing to use uh, for this 1984 type uh, top-down control, literally thought control uh, in the name of health, of course. Uh, but in this case, uh, you don't have to do that in a lot of parts of the United States. It's just what people want to do to get ahead, to be accepted with the right people uh, and or to be uh, rejected by the wrong people. Uh, those folks in the church back home or those religious fundamentalists uh, or those cultural conservatives. Uh, this is uh, simply culturally spread uh, you don't have to impose it from the top down if people are going to impose this upon themselves, if they are going to be conditioned by not necessarily uh, being conditioned in utero or in these nurseries at the world state uh, hatcheries, but they're being conditioned by things like their smartphones and undiscerning acceptance of popular culture. Uh, these memes that the government in Brave New World has to spread spending is better than mending or everyone belongs to everyone else. You don't have to spread those memes by government because the assumptions are just there. They're not even codified in phrases. Uh, it's just assumed that you are going to uh, belong to everyone else. Just so long as everything's consensual, then it's uh, then no harm, no foul. Uh, it's still conditioning. Uh, it's just less overt uh, because it's voluntary, but it makes people feel good. Uh, you get the endorphin rush. Uh, you get to avoid whatever trauma you perceive has happened to you by distracting yourself. It's that self-distraction phenomenon, I think. If you can get people into the condition of distracting themselves, then you don't have to watch them through a screen. Uh, they will watch themselves uh, in order to uh, meet what they feel are their basic needs. Okay, so here's why I think you're wrong. <laughs> and here's why I think it's, it's actually the 1984 prequel that's happening. 
So you said that uh, the government doesn't necessarily direct the news agencies or whatever to say. Well, well, or that's they, don't, what, they don't have to. I wouldn't they, be well, surprised. Yes. But, I mean, well, they yeah, are, but yeah. I, I think you're right about they don't have to. I mean, because there, there is the network effect of social media where everyone changes their profile picture or something to reflect a certain trend. Right. And okay. That's just the sort hive of that, mind. Yeah. The yeah, crowd that, mind. Yeah. Yeah. There's that peer pressure that kind of kicks in. Then there are the quasi organized uh, social movements like postmodern deconstructionism. I mean, talking about controlling language, you know, the, the way that language gets hijacked because, um, you know, there's so, sort of this weird secular supernatural approach to language where, you know, you can't let people say certain things or you must make them say certain things because of how that affects identity, which is sort of this, you know, uh, materialist, spiritual uh, worldview a lot of people have. So there are the the social trends that happen, but we've learned now from this report from The Intercept that what the D- Department of Homeland Security has been doing is very intentional and very targeted. It says that they are targeting, quote, inaccurate information on a wide range of topics, including the origins of COVID-19 pandemic, the efficacy of the vaccines, racial justice, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the nature of U.S. support to Ukraine, end quote. So these are very specific topics that uh, this team of 80 or so people has been meeting with tech companies every two weeks, every two weeks since the 2020 election to talk about. And by the way, this did get started under the previous administration. So this is not a partisan thing. And, and really, I mean, the DHS has been going on since four administrations ago. So this is a bipartisan problem, I guess you could say. But there is a very targeted approach by our federal government to control what they call the information ecosphere. And uh, well, there's some really creepy uh, phrases. They, they say that we have a cognitive infrastructure that we need to protect. Just like we, uh, you know, there was a conspiracy theory a couple of years ago that like uh, COVID-19 was being spread by 5G cell phone towers or something. It's really wacky kind of stuff. I remember that one. And, yeah. and there the were first people that were I told burning about- them down. Yeah. The first yeah. person I told, Hey, uh, I just heard literally the news had just broken, uh, that there was going to be a, so they thought at the time of a vaccine right, an effective vaccine. The first person I told, told me about the 5g weird theory. And of right. course I thought immediately like, well, dude, like they're not going to track you with a chip inserted by a vaccine. Like I can <laughs> see the smartphone you're holding. They already have right your smartphone. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so it's a language to express uh-huh. Uh, it's just, it's a, it's, it's an evasive language. And Zach, I see what you're saying about like actual, uh, government intrusion into what we would like to think is a technologically enabled free speech, like talking with Twitter and, and Facebook and all of them, uh, trying to combat misinformation. By the way, I, I don't, I will never use that word. Like it's either truth or lies, or maybe it's confusing, but that to me s- seems a, a, a recent addition to the dictionary. And therefore I find it suspicious yes. Yes, there's all these sh- controlled shades of meeting misinformation disinformation and i'm like malinformation that does sound yep. orwellian and that's yep. another word uh that we should have mentioned earlier has come about it's obviously not used in 1984 uh, but it's overused to describe a society that is like big brother people just say orwellian and i'm like well it's kind of unfair you know the man wrote other books you know it's not like he wants this sort of thing uh, but why don't we also then refer to uh worship of sex as Huxleyan uh, that, or worship of consumerism may as well turn his name into uh, the, uh, the adjective as well. That's the emphasis that I see 
because I do see the top down, like soft attempts you know, so far, at least in the United States, soft attempts at thought control. Uh, and I, on the one level, I could find that understandable if it wasn't also overlapping with the so far voluntary cultural attempts at thought control when it comes to social issues. When it comes to the idea that a woman can become a man or vice versa simply by the power of self-conditioning and medical treatment uh, that would not be uh, uh, completely foreign to the world state in our uh, brave new world. Uh, that's the one thing that yeah, Huxley did not predict is that, hey, at least there's traditional gender roles uh, in the world state, but the identity of, of the family roles has been abolished. And so, I mean, they'll get there eventually. Uh, in the world state, people will have identity crisis and they will figure out uh, that they think they want to be uh, representing the opposite sex or any of that nonsense. Uh, that's the one thing that he left out. And, and that's the one thing, though, that people are deciding is misinformation. That's a scary thing because there will be overlap. It's not just an issue of whether or not the election was fair a few years ago. People are saying, well, you can't spread that. That's misinformation. You know, if you question that too much and maybe it is and maybe it is a lie and there's lots of lies out there. But it, uh, to say that a boy is not a girl, that is not misinformation. That is not a lie. The person who is denying that, that is the liar. And the truth is not in him. Like I, I see that as father of lies type stuff. Uh, that is scary to me. And yet so far that's voluntary. But there was at least one government leader in the United States not too long ago uh, that put his flag on the platform of saying that it is immoral for people to try to put a stop to this sexual confusion. And like he, he said that. And so therefore he makes himself an enemy of Christ. That is a, a spirit of antichrist there, uh, denying the reality of the created world. And okay, that's your opinion. But if you're starting to put legislative or executive teeth behind that, uh, now we're in scary territory. Now we're in world state type stuff, but it's, uh, it's kind of the reverse. It's world state, uh, sexual perversion, uh, could be enforced by 1984 rules. So uh, maybe we end up again with a, a, a Godzilla King Kong team up uh, at the end here, Zach. It's like, are we in 1984 prequel or a Brave New World prequel? Yes, uh, it depends. I mean, which way wilt thou go, uh, human society? Uh, but I think in either case, I wouldn't want to end with any hopelessness because mm -hmm. uh, in in a Brave New World, there's going to be somebody like John the Savage who's clinging to the old ways. Uh, however raw, uh, however completely ignorantly, uh, someone will feel deep down that there's something out there that you're missing with all your emphasis on efficiency and consumerism and so-called free love. And yet even in 1984, uh, you'll get somebody from a more secular vantage like Winston Smith, uh, who's going to suspect uh, that something isn't right. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm being thought controlled and that's not good. And maybe there actually is a resistance out there somewhere. Uh, you can find someone to support there. Uh, but that's, what's unrealistic about these books is that in the end, uh, the evil government wins. Winston learns to love big brother Bernard uh, from brave new world, uh, just kind of goes back to the system. Uh, wait, does he end up in Iceland? I'm trying to remember. I, I read that one first because it came first in chronological order. Somebody gets shipped off to Iceland, uh, and that's not where you want to go. Uh, but it's for your own good, of course. Uh, but Winston really, you know, he gets separated from uh, his girlfriend, and they they both end up being forced to love Big Brother. Uh, and it's uh, it's it's a tragedy. But we know that in Christ, 
there's no way for the dystopian to win. Uh, There's no way for either Big Brother or the world state uh, to reign over humanity for the rest of recorded time. Uh, Even if the worst case scenario happens, I think Christ will be faithful and and we can look forward to him overthrowing whatever dystopian uh, governments are left uh, when he returns. Yeah, I think there is definitely hope for the world that we're in, and I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but first, I think we have to kind of go through what I, I'm just going to go through what I think is going to happen or what I think is happening. Okay, it's an official prophecy here. Okay, no, yes. it's not. It's just, it's just <laughs> guessing. We're just, we're just guessing. We're trying to do an informed guess here. Okay. Yeah. So I mentioned that there's already this public-private partnership between the Department of Homeland Security and all these tech companies to you know, what, what they call um, reinforcing the cognitive infrastructure. You know, first they were trying to protect the physical infrastructure, keep, uh, you know, planes from hitting buildings or keeping cell phone towers from getting burned down. But now their goal is to protect the cognitive infrastructure. That's thought. So that, that's cognitive thought means thought yeah. control. Yeah, exactly. Or thought yeah. influence. Yeah, that's, that's not, not cool. Now, uh, there is a lot of pushback against this. You know, there are lots of lawsuits that are happening. There's lots of exposure to this. Um, and the, what gives me hope is that there's a lot of independent media covering this. A lot of the mainstream corporate media, I, I think, has been completely corrupted, although there are some good signs, like certain networks are kind of purging a lot of this nonsense. But um, I, I think that the cause for hope is that... Um, in 1984, Big Brother is all-encompassing and all-consuming. Totalitarian, and, yes. Yeah, and he's uh, frankly a little more efficient than our actual government. And um, it's sort of like he won every victory. He's kind of a Mary Sue almost character. Well, it's a cult. Uh, it's a cult of personality. Uh, you've, you've got this small yeah, but what system I mean is, spread large. It's, it kind of works, it, but... It's almost like he was too fortunate and too lucky and won too many battles. I, I don't think our actual government is, is that effective or yeah because humans are not that effective and and they will try to compete with one another and at least in the united states you still have the vestiges of that representative republic system where everybody's trying to maintain the integrity of their branch or their state government or their little agency uh it's almost a common grace that people want to compete with one another like politics is a common grace if for no other reason than it does tend to spread out the power in a very messy way so while I don't think our government is as effective as or as evil as, you know, Big Brother, I do think there are elements of it that are not going to give this up. And one of the ways I see this happening, so this is kind of one of my prophecies, is I think we're going to see the rise of what's called CBDC or central bank digital currency. And this is, again, what they're trying to institute in China. It's a little more technically complicated than just doing online payments or whatever. It's like converting our financial system to a blockchain token-based system. So you might think I'm talking about Bitcoin, but I actually think Bitcoin is the way out of this. I think other, because Bitcoin is a decentralized currency. I think what we're seeing right now are the rise of two very interesting technological movements. One is towards centralized power and control of information, finance, uh, culture, entertainment, and you know, pharmacology and, and, and so forth. But then there's this rise of decentralized media, as we talked about, finance, um, culture, and and so forth. And I think that's what's really going to happen. I think that's kind of the way out of this. You know, we talked about this way back in episode 55, should Christians embrace cultural and digital enclaves? And I think that is a lot of what, you know, this podcast, honestly, is, is a digital enclave. It is a 
decentralized form of discussion, entertainment, analysis. And there are so many podcasts like this. It, it's really taking off. And I, I think that is a check and balance on this sort of centralized big brother control. But what actually worries me is how too often we are putting our faith in powerful figures that seem to be on our side and that might have similar goals, but by the nature of the power they are grabbing onto it, it could be a, a double-sided or it could be a double-edged sword. And I'm, I'm thinking right now, actually, of Elon Musk. He just bought Twitter. He took control of it. He fired half of the staff. They're going to rewrite a lot of the algorithms and policies about what you're allowed to say or not say. However, and I'm all for that. However, Elon Musk, before he started PayPal, he had this idea for an everything app he called X or X.com or something. And this is sort of the WeChat version. This is the American version of WeChat where you would do everything to this app. And hey, if you can do everything, someone can turn it off. <laughs> so that's that's part of the problem is that we are racing towards this future where everything is so convenient and you get everything through your your phone, but then someone can take that away or control it. But we are also seeing the rise of ways to get around all these gatekeepers and all of these you know social controls. And so I I don't really know how it's going to end up. Again, I I think it probably is going to be a mesh between these two dystopians. But yes, ultimately, Christ is going to return and put all this right. But I'm a premillennialist, so I think things are going to get worse before he comes back. So it's just a matter of how worse they're going to get. Zach, you mentioned the checks and balances, and that is a sign for optimism, is that uh, even though it seems pessimistic to say, well, which way is society going, Brave New World or 1984? And society seems to answer all of them at once, I suppose. Yeah, right. All of the above. And, and yet that, that also is maybe a sign for hope because now you've got two self-contradictory approaches. Uh, let, let's say in terms of the economic thought control uh, and the sexual relational thought control. Both of these are contradictory uh, because you cannot get right. efficient human uh, family structures uh, to actually help with the whole big brother thing, unless you have some kind of family cohesion, like you, your children can't turn on you and report you to big brother. Uh, if you don't have children, if the state is growing the children or, or you don't, yeah, you just don't have any children at all because it's just all about your pleasure. Thank you very much. And by the way, polyamory polygamy, that's the next thing folks. It, it always has been. Uh, so you've got even more of an overt attack on, um, the Judeo Christian uh, family ethic there, but they pushed it too far. Uh, and I think that eventually within our lifetimes, uh, we will see people rise up out of desperation and anger, uh, particularly those who've actually had the mad science surgeries done on them. Uh, it's already starting. There are being lawsuits, there are being clinics shut down. It's going to be nasty. It's going to be very messy. And people don't have time for all your nonsense, adding words to the dictionary. By the way, it's a difference in between 1984 that was taking words out. Uh, our, our guys keep adding stuff like misinformation and disinformation. Like we underestimate how much bureaucracy loves to clutter things up with new words. Uh, I think it was a bit of a misstep of 1984, by the way, uh, the exact opposite is happening about people are adding new identities too. And people are realizing this did not solve my problem. This isn't Soma that just makes my problems go away. It just makes everything worse. Uh, so you're going to have more mess in society in order to prevent, I think, uh, those overt uh, big brother type attempts uh, from going too much further. 
regarding Musk, I don't want to get too much into that, but I think it is a temptation with somebody from the inside. Like you don't feel like big brother from the inside. If you're Elon Musk, like you're, you're just a guy who ended up being really wicked smart and socially awkward and uh, strange and quite a bit of a troll, but uh, you're a wild card. You are outside of maybe these big government attempts. Uh, you don't like that stuff, uh, but you're also a bit of a libertine. And uh, you're outside the gospel. Uh, you're outside the hope of uh, of redemption, really. I mean, I would like Elon Musk to repent, and then he'd have to make Same. a lot of changes to his lifestyle. Uh, but until then, you're going to feel a messianic complex simply because that's what people do. Right. Uh, and, and yet that also, I think, is a check on us going too far into uh, the big brother or even the, the, uh, the uh, Brave New World mode of thinking is that people are at heart idolaters. And they've been conditioned by their own sinful hearts before they're conditioned by the government or before they're having their faces stamped on by Big Brother. Yeah. And I think, as you said, are we in 1984 or Brave New World or is it both? I think in a way it's also neither because both of those books predicted a completely secular, non-religious, non-supernatural world. Yeah, and that's unrealistic. And, and that's completely unrealistic. I think uh, what we're actually seeing and what we will see is the rise of a new theocracy. And because theocracies always take the same form, like you're not allowed to ask questions, there's heretics, people are excommunicated, you know, and yes, Christian history is littered with some abuses of power as well. But the default of man is to find something to worship and then force other people to worship it as well and to try to, you know, dethrone the other gods. And we are definitely seeing the rise of this theocracy over uh, not only just genderism, but identity um, and just sort of this worship of consumerism, this worship of certain political processes. But there also is a supernatural element to it. There is a very close connection between some of our current social and political trends and actual legit like paganism, witchcraft, they are being promoted at the same time by the same people. So again, you know, man is inherently religious. He will find something to worship. And then when these people get sufficient power, whether it's through government or culture or technology or all of the above, uh, they're going to try to implement that theocracy on all of us. And so we're going to see that rather than just a totally godless world like Huxley or Orwell. Right. Well, I think both Huxley and Orwell understood that the human heart is explicitly religious and can therefore be manipulated. Uh, Huxley's uh, religious devotion to Henry Ford and the, the weird religious raves, and by the way, that's even weirder if you listen to it in the audiobook form, the narrator really gives it his all uh, with, this, with these really bizarre chantings and wailings and all of this. Uh, people do worship Ford. That's kind of their big brother type figure, but it's far more religious in Brave New World. Whereas in 1984, I mean, you don't know whether Big Brother is real or not. Uh, he is a he's a, a illustration. He's a figurehead. It's, it's a more uh, more direct cult of personality there. The difference, uh, I think, you nailed it, Zach, and we'll we'll move to a close there. Is that both of these books are not supernatural? They're both absolutely secular, uh, and that's the fatal flaw because we do live in a supernatural world that is being still uh, providentially overseen by the creator God. Uh, Christians are being redeemed by the active work of Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not abandoned to this world. 
The Holy Spirit is not going to let things go so far that people will be hoodwinked into worshiping Henry Ford, of all people, or a made-up tyrant like Big Brother. Uh, it's not that people are basically good and would resist that sort of thing. Is that the Holy Spirit is the big good, and he will preserve a people for himself. Uh, and even people who are not Christians are going to resist this kind of thing because there is also common grace in the world. Evil people can do good things. Uh, and even if you're veering toward another uh, method of dystopia, even that can be a check against the other uh, method of dystopia. And th so there's this push-pull effect. You don't even know which way it will go because you've got these competing visions of evil, but then you've also got the good that is still in the world. And that's why, even though we can fear the dystopian governments of these books or the potential for China to get out of control or the United States to get out of control, uh, God is sovereign. Uh, he will not abandon the world. He will not let it be overrun by a flood of dystopian governments any more than he would let it again be overrun by a physical flood. Uh, judgment is to come. Whether or not you believe in an antichrist dystopian government, uh, Christ will return. He will set up his kingdom. We are destined not for dystopia, but for a proper God-ruled utopia full of perfect love and adventures for eternity. Well, let's go to our very not dystopian uh, comm station. And we've got some notes here from Guild Hero Dr. J. Aerosmith Harker III, <laughs> who remarked on our previous episode 136 about politics and how that, how that became a totalitarian force at times for evangelical culture, or did it? You can go and listen and give your thoughts. But Harker III said, quote, politics is important, but a side issue for me. I don't remember everything being so strident as it is now with moderation treated as a lack of principle. Still, I do remember candidate lists as far back as the 84 presidential election, but it's stories that changed the human heart. George Orwell's animal farm does more than any Ayn Rand book to warn that the danger of socialism is in the heart of humanity because it's a great story End quote. And yeah, I think, um, our guild hero here is referring to Rand's uh, nonfiction books, perhaps. But even, uh, you know, I've, I've heard that the fiction book is kind of, um, I don't know, a little on the nose or something. I oh, Ayn Rand is definitely it. on the nose. I, yeah. I, I read through half of one because I had like the one libertarian instructor in university. Uh, that, that wasn't, uh, it wasn't Atlas Shrugged. It was the Fountainhead. Yes. And that was, yeah, uh, very, very dry. Uh, there's... I mean, it's not a, so it's a, it's a story, novel. but it may not be as effective of a story. Yes. Yeah. And it's just really dense and it appeals to a particular type of personality that is not me. Okay. It's not me at all. Uh, we had another comment on our website that I'm just going to paraphrase because uh, it basically said uh, in response to our question, uh, how did politics become king of evangelical popular culture? It said, well, read this one book. It explains it all. Uh, and I've not read that one book and I don't plan to read that one book, uh, but I am casually familiar with the book. Uh, and I, far as I can tell, I, I strongly disagree with the approach of that book. Uh, to some of the author is a professing Christian and a, a historian uh, who blames the evangelical patriarchy. This is how politics took over. It's because of the toxic masculinity thing that starts in popular culture and then Christians took it up and that's how politics took over and that's bad. Uh, I don't agree. And maybe we could have put this in the concession stand before Zach. I, I don't agree with that kind of minimalist approach. Uh, and frankly, I think it's a bad faith approach to think that it's all the types of people that I don't like from the church back home and all the people who are emphasizing manly strength as the problem. I know that 
the whole masculine idea the whole hyper masculinity thing is definitely an issue. Uh, but Christians are often bolting in that direction because they think that can solve another problem. And if you're not dealing with problems like the sexual revolution, which this uh, professing Christian historian seems to be completely ignorant about, uh, maybe she's in a ideological gulag or just a sentimental bubble and seems unaware of these issues beyond the church uh, as this author sees it. Uh, but you don't see that that is a problem that leads to the other problem of this hyper-masculine fix, uh, then you are falsely identifying why Christians have gotten all up into the politics. Uh, yes, the patriarchy, uh, the, the abusive kind, it's bad. Uh, the Whatever the, the proper meaning of toxic masculinity, itself a recent addition to the dictionary, by the way, uh, and abuses that are associated with males, uh, that is bad. It's a distortion of power. It's not how Christ exemplified the proper use of divine power. Those things are bad, but they are not our only concern. Uh, and I see people taking up simplistic and saccharine explanations like that. Uh, I think it's it's both um, indefensible from a Christian worldview to be so hyper-focused on that one thing. But it also seems to me uh, a personal issue that people are working out with the language of politics. You're getting so focused on the problems you're familiar with from the church back home or the bad ministry people you've dealt with or the bad Christians you've met uh, that you completely miss the encroaching dystopians from outside, either Brave New World style or 1984 style or all at once. The only dystopia you seem to know seems to be the local church. Uh, then you are missing the forest for the trees. Uh, there are other threats out there. Uh, you may be called to focus on different threats uh, based on your experience level uh, in your training. But don't say this is the only thing we need to worry about. This is the only reason why politics became king uh, and we need to get rid of that one thing. Like It's not going to work, uh, but also you're going to have an unbiblical approach that denies the reality of different levels of human imagination. And I think that's all I have to say about that, uh, but may revisit this in the future, uh, just when people are confusing uh, political issues for their own personal issues. Well, if you have a comment on today's episode about Brave New World 1984, uh, did you see the movies of either of these? We haven't even talked about those, but you know we're mostly just talking about the books. Send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com or tag us on social media. Just find Lorehaven on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. I did see that there was an attempted miniseries of Brave New World not too long ago. Um, I didn't get into it at all. I wasn't interested. It was one of those more obscure streaming services. I did do a little research uh, where the reviewer had rather uh, snarkily noted that, wow, you could do a lot with Brave New World. Like You could uh, revisit that whole society uh, through the lens of today's society and what would today's technology do with that philosophy. And you could really go places with this. Or you could just show a lot of naked people. So they apparently just showed a lot of no, naked people and no. called it a day, at least according to this reviewer. And I am just completely disinterested in that. You've now become part of the problem. Uh, I don't think people now can handle a TV adaptation of Brave New World. I think it just needs to stay a book. Uh, at best, do an audio drama. Uh, the audio book was perfectly fine for me. And I may never listen to it again. Uh, once was just enough. Uh, meanwhile, at Lorehaven, uh, I don't think we have any new articles uh, this week of release for this episode. Uh, let's just say we're taking the uh, week off for Election Day. We all had to go out and vote. Uh, but definitely see Elijah David's uh, recent article about the Giver Quartet uh, by Lois Lowry. Uh, she apparently just announced a new book, uh, still riding along uh, Lois Lowry. Uh, but uh, Eli's a big fan of her Giver Quartet, which is uh, an exploration of human flourishing versus uh, dystopian government in four different ways. Uh, very interesting there. I only saw the movie, uh, which was pretty good. I uh, haven't read the book, but he's got some great things to say about that. 
a happier topic is Andrew Peterson's first book in the Wing Feather Saga. Uh, we reviewed that uh, not too long ago. Check out our links there on the show notes. Uh, that one is called On the Edge of the Dark Sea of Darkness. Uh, it's book one of the Wing Feather Saga, soon to be a TV series near you. We're using technology for good. Some Christians are to adapt a more healthy, if not darker, Christian-made fantasy from Andrew Peterson. Uh, we're also doing a book quest through that book uh, throughout the month of November in the Lorehaven Guild. It's our free exclusive Discord community. You can join at lorehaven.com. Just sign up for the newsletter. You can choose your updates and also get your exclusive access to the Guild community. This week, uh, we've got a new review coming out on Friday. It's a science fiction novel for middle grade readers, a first chapter book illustrated type thing called Trouble in the CTC. That's coming out this Friday. And to round off uh, the next two episodes in our four-part, uh, for now, Dystopian Doom series on the podcast, we have scheduled interviews with authors Kathy McCrum. Uh, her sponsorship there uh, through uh, Enclave uh, Oasis was at the top of this show, and her new book, Aberration, is coming out. So we're hitting that on release date, Lord willing. And then we're also going to Bradley Caffey, the author of the Chase Runner series, another dystopian series, a bit newer. So it'll be very interesting to hear their perspectives on a more science fiction approach. Uh, to human personhood versus this Android implant type approach uh, imposed by the consortium. And then Bradley Caffey's uh, series uh, promises to be a lot of fun. We've got one reviewer on our review team who really likes it, and I'll be really fascinated to hear their takes on more new uh, dystopian stories. A note, by the way, that we're taking a break from uh, Fantastical Truth episodes on Tuesday, November 22nd. That's the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Zach and I are off. Uh, we're going to spend time with our families and then uh, come back, I think, with the Bradley Caffey episode uh, the Tuesday, November the 29th. So brief programming note there. Next on Fantastical Truth, have you had enough of depressing dystopias? No? Well, then welcome to the world of the Consortium, which uses nanotech to turn people more like androids. The young woman recorder is one of these. She is assigned with her neural implant to high-tech record-keeping. But when she's cut off from that technology, can she rediscover her humanity before the consortium discovers her? That's the plot of Recorder by Kathy McCrum, and her sequel, Aberration, releases this month. On our next episode, we will use technology in the proper way to meet Kathy while preserving our humanity. Thank you very much. We will explore these heavy questions with a light touch on our next Fantastical Truth episode. Meanwhile, vote against dystopia. That is my hot take. But also vote against would-be utopian governments. You're not going to get it right. Any government we have now is a common grace at best. Christ seems to have done a little world-building trick in the world to use even our own idolatry against us. Humans compete with other humans trying to race to a better world, but we're not going to do it. Christ himself is the king creator of this world. He's the only one who can fix it. He's the only one who can restore all human flourishing, not through tyranny, but through love and sacrifice and right use of divine power. We look forward to that restoration as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. 